Uh, John chapter 18, please, as we continue our study through John. Please open your Bibles there. This has been a great week for victories at the Olympics. Canada isn't the Rodney Dangerfield of Olympic countries anymore. They finally had one of their athletes win an, uh, a gold medal on Canadian soil uh, during the Olympics. That's the first time in, in three sets of Olympics that that's happened. So uh, this man is extremely famous in Canada, skiing the moguls. Uh, this is Lindsay Vaughn. She had a, an incredible victory. She had a shin that was bruised so badly she didn't think she would be able to even compete. And because of uh, weather delays and other things, she healed up enough. She not only competed, but won the gold medal in the downhill skiing. This fellow is the first U.S. male figure skater to win a gold medal since 1988. So that makes him famous now, uh, for those of you that follow figure skating very carefully. This fellow... Um, let me get my statistic right here. Shawnee Davis, an American, the first African-American to win an individual gold medal at a Winter Olympics. And he hasn't won just one medal. He's, uh, I believe he's won several. Before the sermon, we sang the song, Victory in Jesus. And we're going to continue talking about the passion of Christ, the time in his life as he was moving toward the crucifixion and talk about the victory that he had <laughs> and the victory that he wants us to have even though sometimes the victory doesn't look like a victory, humanly speaking. In particular, we're going to talk about the trial of Christ today at the great injustice that was there and understand how you will suffer similar things and yet it's not a failure, it's a victory. Please follow as I read from John 18. We've looked at parts of John 18 and 19 several times, and that's because we're looking at the themes in them. We've looked at Peter's life. We've looked at the people who, who were responsible for the death of Christ. Today we're going to look at the trial, and so we want to pick up all of the notes on the trial from John 18 and 19. So we'll start in verse 28 of John 18. And you might just tune your mind a little bit to, to think about a court trial and what Jesus went through. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, that is the governor, the Roman governor's residence, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate went out to them, and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. And then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, 
Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Then Pilate said to him, Are you, excuse me, Therefore, verse 8, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on... Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. This is an amazing, an amazing uh, series of, of events. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that the gospel writers picked up on a few different details. None of them conflict. But in order to get the full story, we need to look at some of the other gospel writers as well. And so because we want to look at the trial of Christ, we're going to do that. And we're going to understand um, the trial of Christ and its injustice. And the first step in that trial was, was the interrogation by Annas. We didn't read that part of the scripture. But if you look at chapter 18, verse 13, from the time he was arrested in... Uh, in the garden, verse 13 says, They led him away to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And we've explained this before, but for those of you who weren't here, the high priest 
was supposed to be the high priest for life in, in the people in the life of Israel. But because the Roman government was ruling over Israel, they would, they would make men step aside and somebody else take their place, depending on the, the whims of the, of the Roman governor. And so what developed was what we would call a past president and a current president and a future president of an organization. And there were a whole group of men called the high priest. Now here in particular is the one who is the father-in-law of the current high priest. And so for whatever reason, when they arrested Jesus, they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law. Perhaps he was the guy who really wielded the power, and his son-in-law was sort of the puppet. We don't know. So they take him there for what I've called an interrogation. It wasn't the trial. It was sort of a pre-trial hearing, and there was some attempt to get him to say some things. Um, and so this is the first stop. And then from there, we don't hear much about what goes on at the home of Annas, but from there he's taken to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And we read uh, this verse. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas to the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. The scribes would have been the people who today we would call lawyers, And the reason they were called lawyers is because their job was to copy the Old Testament law, to give people written copies. And so they became experts in the law, and they became kind of a a group, kind of a segment, if you will. So the scribes were there, and then the elders, which is probably a reference to the Sanhedrin, the official ruling body of Israel under Rome, and there were essentially 70 of them. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was one of them. So the scribes and the elders were assembled, and certainly the high priest is there, and we would assume perhaps Annas and others who might be considered in that high priestly category. Now, what you need to note as we think about the injustice of Christ's trial is this. Jewish law, not the Old Testament, but the law that they lived by and that they lived and died by, forbade a trial at night. Jesus was in the garden praying that they, they arrest him and take him straight to this clearly set up group of people. Um, you know, in, in a place, I've been in some places where there's no electricity at night. <laughs> and when the lights go off, it's not a long time until people go to bed because they don't have candles and they don't have TVs and so on. And so for them to be assembled at night had to be a a set-up thing. You know, it was obviously worked at and put together. And it was illegal for them to have the trial at night. Let's follow on Matthew's account. Now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. (laughs) It's pretty bad when you go out to find somebody to lie and you can't find a liar. It wouldn't be that hard, maybe, around where you work. I don't know. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they still couldn't find any. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And so what we understand is the false witnesses were just that. What Jesus actually said was, destroy this temple, his body, and and I will raise it up in three days. He never said, I will destroy the temple and build it in three days, the building. That was the best they could do. And and for them, in that time, even though there wasn't an Old Testament law against it, to speak against the temple was to speak against God in their minds. 
so they considered that some kind of a charge. The false witnesses were false witnesses. Let's follow along. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, his outer garment, and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. The word blasphemy literally means to speak bad. And it's almost always used in the context of speaking bad against God. And so they said, look, this fellow claims to be God. No human being can do that. That's just wrong. That is deserving of death. Now, it's a true statement that if he had spoken blasphemy, he would have been guilty of a capital crime. But here's the question. Did they disprove his statement? Were witnesses called? None other than the false witnesses. They had three years of ministry. They were all around. They all saw the miracles. They heard the truth. They had what we call the Old Testament, the Scriptures. And here's his life. Here's his claims. Here's the Scripture. And there was no disagreement. He was, in fact, the Son of God. He was the Messiah that they were looking for. Thus, he was innocent of all charges, but still convicted. There is a, I, I guess it would be right to call it an organization in this country called the Justice Project. And people who claim to be innocent, I guess if they have a case, obviously everybody claims to be innocent in jail, but there are some who appear to have a good case, this project will go and work with them. And just recently, a man was released out of jail. He'd been in jail for 16 years for murdering somebody, and they conclusively proved that he did not do it. Uh, that's a great thing. Jesus was innocent, and yet he was proven guilty. Not, excuse me, not proven guilty, declared guilty. Step four in the trial of injustice is the first hearing before the Roman governor. Uh, look in your Bible there at John chapter 18. This is where John picks up the story primarily, John 18, uh, 29. Um, they, they took him to Pilate. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Those uh, scholars that I have read in the commentaries have said this was essentially Pilate opening the trial. In our court trials, a guy comes out and says, Hear ye, hear ye, the honorable judges, and so on. And then at some point, the, the charges are read. Pilate is asking for the charges. It's the beginning of the trial. What charge do you bring? And their answer is as weak as it can be. Verse 30, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Let's just write it this way. They pressed for a sentence without evidence. Look, he's guilty. Just, just take him and crucify him. Take our word for it. And Pilate said, no, I'm not going to take your word for it. Uh, Luke adds this note. Then the whole multitude of them, that's the, the, the priests and the elders and so on, uh, arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him. 
In other words, the fuller thing of what was going on is this. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that that statement has some truth and some error. He said he was Christ, which made him to be a king, but he never said don't pay your taxes. In fact, he personally paid taxes on one occasion that's recorded. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in him. (laughs) Boy, they thought they were really going to nail him to the wall. And Pilate said, there's no problem here. But they were more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. Um, In our thinking, this would be counties, if you will, or maybe even little states in the nation of Israel. So Galilee would be a place up north from Jerusalem, uh, you know, up to Linden or, or something like that. Oh, is he from Galilee? And as soon as he knew that, he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate thought, yes, out of my backyard. That's what he did. Herod was the governor. Pilate was over Judea. Herod was over Galilee. Herod happened to also be in Jerusalem for the Passover time. And so Pilate says, I'm just going to send him over there. I'm done with that. Unfortunately, it didn't work that good. Uh, The Jewish leaders brought these false accusations, and Pilate sent him off. And so what about the hearing from Herod? That's the next step in this trial of injustice, the hearing from Herod, Luke 23. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Hey, this is great! For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see a miracle. Do you get that? Hey, this guy does tricks. Man, I want to see a trick. That's what he's saying. They questioned him with many words, but he answered nothing. It's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says, As the sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In this setting, he opened not his mouth. He did talk with Pilate some, but not much. And the chief priest and the scribe stood and vehemently accused him. These guys couldn't have been more angry. And they're throwing this stuff, throwing this stuff, and throwing this stuff. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And what do you think Pilate thought when he saw him coming down the road? Oh, no. Pilate was hoping to push the whole mess into Herod's lap, but Herod pushed it back. So now we have the second hearing before Pilate. Look at John 18, 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no fault in him. And it goes on from there. You have a custom that I should release someone and so on. Let's look at the summary of this. Jesus was sent back to Pilate who found him guiltless and he said so publicly several times can you imagine going to the municipal court at ferndale and you got your speeding ticket and the judge says he's innocent he's innocent he's innocent and they still come up and say write us a check for 100 bucks you go that's not right that's why i'm i've called this the trial of injustice It's just not right. 
Jesus was sent back to Pilate who found him guiltless. And so what did Pilate do? Look at chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the physical sufferings of Christ next week. This was a huge, huge thing that happened right here. This was almost a death sentence. And Pilate thought, I'm going to scourge him, and then I'm going to bring him out, and I'm going to go, there he is. Is is that enough? Because Pilate did not want to put what he believed to be an innocent man to death. So not only did he scourge him, but he allowed his troops to abuse him, and he was innocent still. And Pilate again pronounces Christ innocent. Pilate went out again after all of this. Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you can know that I find no fault in him. Unbelievable. And so then the, uh, the Jews say, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Again, this is a false charge. Jesus was convicted on a false charge. He was the Son of God. The, conf- the confirmation of this innocence comes in passages like John eight forty six, in which Jesus said right to the Pharisees, which of you convicts me of sin? Come on, guys, show me my error. Nobody ever did. Nobody ever did. And so then we have the pronouncement of sentence in John 19, 16. Then he, Pilate, delivered Jesus to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Let me recap the trial for you. Jesus was tried at night by the Jews, which was illegal. He was believed guilty before the trial started. Actual witnesses were not called, nor did they see, the, the people in the trial seek facts. They received the testimony of liars. They pronounced him guilty because of their prejudice against him and their hatred. They presumed the Rome, they pre, excuse me, they pressured the Roman authority to find him worthy of capital punishment, even though the authorities, the Roman authorities, saw no guilt. And if that wasn't enough in the injustice of this trial, the, the Roman government illegally beat innocent, an innocent man and put an innocent man to death, and his own people said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Boy, you need to let that sink in a little bit. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there was nothing made that was made that was not made without him. Do you understand that that means that the people who said, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar, were the creative, the creative possessions of the one they're crucifying. He's the creator. Not only is he the creator, but he is part of the triune God which called Abraham and said, Abraham, come to me, and I will make of you a great and mighty nation, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And God called Abraham and worked in him and worked in the nation of Israel, the very nation from which these Pharisees and, 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 and leaders came from. They owe their national identity to the man they are saying, we don't want him as king. We have no king but Caesar. For a person who was supposed to live under the authority of God to say, the Roman authority is my king, is just the height of what we would call today treason and betrayal. The trial of Christ was completely unjust, unfair, and a travesty of justice 
and a complete victory because there was a bigger purpose than the rights and reputation of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what that's part of what God was talking about in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, existing in heaven as God, did not consider it something to be hung on to, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself all the way to becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ suffered all kinds of indignities willingly because there was a world of sinners and the glory of God on the line. And the scary, glorious, challenging truth is that God calls us to suffer in the same manner. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody in some other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. There is an instruction that comes to us from the trial of Christ, especially as it's illuminated by Peter and Paul and the other apostolic writers. And it tells us that God intends for us to join in the sufferings of Christ. And I want to define, first of all, what this suffering isn't. And I think you'll understand as we work our way through it. But it's very important that you make a a little bit of a separation in your mind between two aspects of difficulty that come on us in the Christian life. What this suffering isn't, this is not God's tool for maturing us. Now, while I understand God can and will use this kind of suffering to mature us, here's the difference. It's different from what he's ta- God talks to us about in James 1. In James 1, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And he goes on to talk about it. And, of course, Romans 5 talks about it at length and many other places. And we understand that God allows difficulty into our life, whether it be of a physical nature or a relational nature or economic. God allows difficulty for the express purpose of maturing us. This is God allowed. Sometimes it's God created. We read of God testing Abraham. 
we read of God testing other people. It's not evil that God does it. God does it to mature us. Those are trials. I would like for you perhaps to create a, a second category in your mind between trials and suffering. That's the word that's used here by Peter. He says, I am going to partake, verse 13, of Christ's suffering. This also isn't suffering that results from our own sin and stupidity. I'm sure that never happens to you, but there have been a couple times in my life when I suffered because I did something wrong or something unwise. 1 Peter 2 says, It's commendable if because of conscience toward God you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. But what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. If you speed and you get a traffic ticket, God does want to use that to grow you up, but know that you created that trial. That's your own deal, okay? Don't go, why God, why me? You know I can't take one more ticket. Why did you let this happen? Okay, if you talk like that, don't come by my house till you're done. Okay, because God is not happy with that. Okay, there are trials from our own sin and our own stupidity, and that's a different category. This also is very important, excuse me, this isn't the suffering of Christ that paid for sin. See, when Peter says here, you're going to partake in Christ's sufferings, there's a temptation for some folks to go, yeah, I'm going to enter right into paying for my own sin. Pope John Paul II, not the current pope, but I don't know if it's the one past or two past popes, projected a warm grandfatherly image to the adoring public who flocked en masse to hear his sermons or watch on TV from home as he traversed the globe. So there was no small shock when a recent book revealed, this is a book written by one of his supporters, when a recent book revealed that the pope who died in 2005 whipped himself with a belt and sometimes lay flat on the floor all night. So how do Catholics explain self-flagellation, beating oneself? Self-mortification teaches us and it encourages us to follow the example of our Lord who made the central act of the Christian religion one of self-denial and literal mortification to bring salvation to mankind. Indeed, the Pope believed suffering by beating himself brought him closer to Christ. That is not what the Scripture teaches. Okay? You are not going to pay for your own sin in any teeny tiny part. We do not, and, and so the important thing for us to understand is this. When Jesus had received the sour wine on the cross, he said, It is finished! And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. When he said that it's finished, he didn't mean I'm done. He meant salvation is accomplished. You don't add to the salvation that Christ provided. Christ gave one sacrifice, but he had many sufferings or many afflictions. And those are the afflictions that God says he wants us to enter into, not on purpose. Okay? I know of some places I think I could go and probably make people really angry by saying some things. And God never encourages us to go to those places and say those things. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about saying, yeah, after church, a bunch of us are going to go down and set some folks straight. Going to go down and suffer for Jesus. No, that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about a very natural kind of thing that happens when we live for the Lord. What this is this suffering? Well, Colossians 1 gives us a little more light. And I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Did Christ not suffer enough? No, he suffered enough. Here's what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Satan afflicted the line of people which produced Christ and tried to stop him from being born. Satan afflicted Christ and tried to get him to abort his God-given mission on earth. Satan afflicts Christians in an effort to stop our growth in Christ and our work for Christ. The suffering of Christ that we may partake of is the result of a hateful Satan attempting to persecute Jesus our Savior through us. As such, suffering for Christ demonstrates our connection to him. That's the whole joy thing in this suffering. In the James 1 trials, the joy is in the fact that you're going to grow up in Christ. In this suffering, God says, take joy that you're connected to Christ. Suffering for Christ demonstrates our connection to him. Look at John 15. This is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. One of the great challenges to modern American Christianity is the desire to be liked by everybody. Oh, you know, if we just love everybody like God loves everybody, they're just going to love us back. It makes sense to me. It does. And yet those are the words of Jesus right there. And so what I find to be true is when I faithfully live for Christ and enunciate his truth, his loving truth, which has things that don't sound too good to some folks and some things that do. When I live that way and say those things, when I stand for those things, there are some people who don't like it. And one of the mentalities we've got to get a hold of as Christians is we are going to encounter hate in the world. Now, that, I, don't, I, I really don't think we should get up in the morning and go, well, people are going to hate me today, so that's just the way it is. And we're all sour and mean and short with people. And when they hate us, we go, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're stupid and you're ungodly. Really? When we live the way Christ wants us to live, Some people won't like it, and there will be some repercussions from it. That's the suffering that we're talking about. 
The Apostle Paul said this, From now on, let nobody trouble me. Let nobody criticize me, because I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You know that little saying we have, that's going to leave a mark? The Apostle Paul stood up for the Lord, and as a result, people beat him and stoned him and things like that. And he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. None of you, I don't think, are carrying any scars that are the direct result of you standing up for Jesus. There are some people in China, and there are some people in Africa that I've read about who are, but not us. But I'll give you an example of a mark that somebody is bearing for Christ today. There's an author that's popular in Christian circles named Randy Alcorn, and and the stuff of his that that I've read looks good. I can't vouch for it all, but he seems to be a godly man. Randy was active in the anti-abortion protests of probably 20 years ago when there was this huge push to get out and really, really march on the streets and protest against abortion clinics. And he got arrested, and I don't know if it was him alone, but it could have been because he was the instigator. He was convicted of compromising somebody's civil rights, you know, for you know, oppressing them about abortion. And I don't know all the details of it, so I'm not saying he was innocent, but he was convicted by the law. So I'll assume he broke the law. The law is just messed up. It was, there was a civil determination against him of, I think, a million dollars or two million dollars or something like that. And he didn't have two million bucks, and he didn't have insurance worth two million bucks. And the way these judgments work is you're allowed to make a certain amount of money to live. To, you know, you've got to eat. But if you make money above that, you're paying it on the judgment. And so ever since that judgment has been made, Randy Alcorn has not made more than minimum wage. Even though he is a best-selling Christian author, he said, I will not give a dollar to those people. And so all the money from all the books that he makes goes to other Christian ministries, and he doesn't get paid more than minimum wage. And that'll be that way for the rest of his life. That's bearing the mark of Christ, suffering for Christ. I don't know how you will suffer for the Lord. Uh... There are certainly people in business who are dishonest, and if you say, no, I must be honest, you will lose business. I have no doubt about that, that that happens. People want you to write some wrong figures on the paper, and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Somebody told me about a contractor who came highly recommended, was active in their church, but all of his business was under the table. Really? Stand up for the Lord and just be an honest man and let God take care of the details, even if you have to suffer. Because suffering not only demonstrates our connection to Christ, suffering is a privilege. Now, I, I, I'm here to tell you, you know me well enough, no, I don't like to suffer. When my neck gets out of whack, I go to the chiropractor, straighten me out, dude. Uh, when I'm hungry, I want to eat. I'm not into suffering. You understand that. 
But you know what? This kind of suffering is a privilege, and we need to get our mind around that. Philippians 1, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of their perdition, the fact that they're going to hell. But to you, it's a proof of salvation, and that from God. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. To you, it has been granted. This is a great privilege that's been given to you. Let's all say, thank you, God, together. Thank you, God. No, God, we don't want to suffer. That really is the truth, isn't it? We don't want to suffer. But if you truly suffer for your Christian faith, for doing what God wants you to do, it is a badge of honor. Now, if you come off of that bragging about it to everybody, that's not that great. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? But, But... When that happens, you ought to walk away going, dude, these people hate Christ. And I'm his disciple. I'm so connected to him that they hate me too. Man, it's a privilege that God has given us. When I was a kid, I wasn't known as a great athlete. I know that shocks you. I know that shocks you. And back in those Neanderthal days in physical education in school, the teacher would pick the two most athletic boys and say, you two are the captains of the team for our baseball game in PE today. Now you guys pick teams. And you know how that goes. They pick their buddies and the ones that are athletic first, and it gets down to about three or four left, and I'm standing there. And I'm going, oh God, don't let me be picked last. (laughs) And usually I was like second or third to last. There was always somebody who who looked obviously worse than me, and uh, I was never chosen first. But you know what? Christ chose me and put me on his team. In fact, I would put it this way. Christ chose us all first. All of us. We're equally chosen. We're equally brought onto his team As soon as the choosing started, Jesus said, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take her, and I'll take him, and me. Being on Christ's team means you get treated like he got treated, and it's a badge of honor. Listen to Acts 5. I love this. And now I say to you, keep away from these men. This is... uh, uh, this is Gamaliel talking to the Jewish leaders about uh, Peter and Paul, uh, Peter and John, and they were they're trying to get them to stop talking about Jesus. Gamaliel says, "Keep away from these men. Let them alone. For for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God." And all of the council agreed with him, so they're going to leave him alone. But when they'd called the apostles and beaten them. Now, wait a minute, you're going to leave us alone. Don't beat us. <laughs> so they said, okay, we're going to leave them alone. Okay, guys, beat them. 
They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So Paul and John departed, or excuse me, Peter and John departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And daily in the temple and every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They went out going, dude, we got treated just like Jesus. And they just went right on preaching and teaching. Man. Unbelievable. If you were selected for the Olympic team for your favorite sport, how happy would you be? I have news for you. The Christ team beats everyone in the end. We get the gold medal. Everybody else gets no medal. Listen to this, how Jesus put it. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. They use your name for an insult for the Son of Man's sake. This is suffering for Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. (laughs) I'd leap for joy, but I might not make it down. When I think of leaping for joy, I think of a person doing handsprings, you know? Boom, 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 boom. And I think, yeah, that's, do that for me. Well, he a couple of times there. Do you understand what Jesus says? Leap for joy. Man, that's hard to get your mind around. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live like Jesus and people are going to hate me and, and I'm going to go, yeah. Not because they hate Jesus. We don't, don't ever be happy because they're, don't ever be happy over that. What he says is, though, be happy that you're, you're that connected to the Lord. Leap for joy. <sighs> Suffering for Christ demonstrates our connection. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. Back in 1 Peter, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. The word blessed in scripture means happy. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have a responsibility to suffer well, Because an unsaved world needs to see the peace of Christ in us like Pilate saw it in Jesus. Jesus stood there. Yeah, whatever you say, Pilate, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm a king. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to scourge you now. Okay, where do I stand? Pilate said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. That's the miracle of God. Now, we understand, we all say, well, of course, it's Jesus. Of course, the miracle of God's working through him. But the same mind of Christ is in us. The same spirit is in us. We have the opportunity to stand before those who hate Christ and would hate us in his place and stand there graciously, meekly, giving them an answer in the Lord, in kindness, in grace. This is a great responsibility We have to look to the work of God being accomplished through our sufferings 
so we can endure sufferings in a godly way. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. God doesn't say be happy because treat you, people treat you bad. Be happy because you're connected with Christ. It's unthinkable to contemplate a Christ who would run away from his God-given responsibility. And it ought to be unthinkable that a member of Christ's body would do anything other than suffer well. Well, 